Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is W. Bradley Wendell, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at Cornell Law School. We will discuss his article, Philosophical Legal Ethics, an Affectionate History, which he co-authored with David J. Lubon and which appeared in the Georgetown Journal of Legal Ethics. So welcome to the podcast, Brad. Thanks, Brian, for having me. Great. So um, as you know, I've been a fan of your work in the legal ethics professional responsibility field for a long time, and it's become especially useful for me now that I've started teaching the class as well. And I was really excited to see this paper come across my SSRN feed because it was very timely for me thinking about kind of conceptualizing this new class that I was going to be teaching. And so I was wondering if you could kind of start this conversation by talking about the, the sort of framework, the conceptual framework for sort of modern legal ethics scholarship that that you and David lay out in the paper, sort of talking about a first wave and a second wave of legal ethics scholarship, sort of, you know, characterizing the two and maybe talking a little bit about sort of where they came from. Sure. And I, I guess I'll start with the kind of standard distinction in the field, and which is that the field of legal ethics and professional responsibility has a number of subfields. And you know, lawyers who hear the term often think of the rules of professional conduct as legal ethics. And that's fine. And I teach that stuff. And, and I, I think it's really interesting. Um, but it's not what the paper is all about. What the paper is all about is really the philosophical discipline of ethics, um, which is to say standards of right and wrong that apply by virtue of being rational moral agents or, or actors in various social roles. And there's a thriving subfield of the legal ethics world that thinks about that kind of stuff. And conceptually where this came from, really, I think I tell the story in the paper. When I was just a, a young pup academic, when I was thinking of my first year of teaching, I was at Washington and Lee and I was co-teaching a class with a friend of mine who had actually just started there as well. And we were doing a seminar on legal ethics. And, and my friend had this really cool directorship of an ethics center that allowed him to bring in uh, various visitors. And we had these weekend long workshops in professional ethics and, and Greg ran them also in medical ethics and business and journalism, I think. Um, but I worked with him on the legal ethics one and the workshops brought together professionals in the field and the students in this class, and then one keynote academic participant. And so Greg said, who do you want in legal ethics? And I said, of course, David Luban. He's somebody I've been reading since I was in law school and I read in grad school and lawyers and justice was this monumental work in the field. And I just thought he was terrific. So I said, let's invite him. And we invited him and he was our keynote and he was fantastic. He just did a great job and he was just such a nice guy. Everyone who knows him knows just what a wonderful human being he is. And we were chatting after one of the sessions and he said, gosh, I don't know that I have anything really left to say about legal ethics. I think I've kind of said my piece. I think I've sort of uh, written out what I'm going to say because I, I think really the big questions in the field have been answered and they're done. And I thought, geez, I really hope that's not true. I'm just starting on this career. And, and if you're right, then I'm screwed. Um, but I said, no, I think, you know, I think there may still be something to say. And really, I spent the next five or six or seven years trying to work out some ideas that I'd started working on in grad school to establish the something different. And it, you know, along the way, I ended up meeting someone who's become a good friend of mine, who's a New Zealand philosopher, uh, Tim Dare. And he was working on very similar themes. And we exchanged papers and drafts of our books. 
And right around 2010, both of our books came out and someone, uh, I think it might've been Ted Schneer, uh, did a review piece on some of this emerging scholarship and called it the second wave or second generation of legal ethics scholarship, um, following on the first wave of people like David and um, Richard Wasserstrom and, and Tom Schaefer to some extent and Arthur Applebaum and people like that. Um, so so Ted, I think, gave us the name second wave or second generation, and, and that's where that idea came from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, maybe, I mean, I think one... One thing that's really interesting about the field you're talking about is just how recent a lot of these developments in legal ethics are. I mean, you know, the first wave is really, you know, you describe it as sort of like a 1960s, 1970s shift in or kind of new interest, as it were, in in legal ethics scholarship. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe where that came from and what the prevailing concerns of this first wave of legal ethics scholarship were as a way of leading into kind of thinking about how the second wave might have changed or um, inflected the course of the discussion. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And you're right that it's a pretty young field in the sense that the early stuff, uh, Wasserstrom, Murray Schwartz, um, an early paper by Bill Simon, some early stuff by David, you know, that is late 60s, early 70s. I think in part what accounts for that is the the general recency of interdisciplinary scholarship within law schools um, in general. I mean, there's been there's been economic scholarship for a long time and sort of you know, like sociology and Roscoe Pound kind of stuff in the 30s. But, um, you know, people doing serious philosophical work within law schools is a development of the maybe the middle part of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, to do this stuff, you need to know something about law and something about philosophy. And so you need people who are trained in both disciplines. Uh, philosophers could have written about this, but I think within philosophy departments, there's a little bit of a disdain for practical ethics disciplines. That's changing a little bit, and, and bioethics is now its own thing. But I think most philosophers might have thought, I don't really want to write about what lawyers do. They didn't necessarily know how interesting it is. It took somebody who was exposed to law and who knew a lot about it to to really want to write something about what lawyers do. This is all just conjecture, but I think um, there was a real interdisciplinary explosion in scholarship starting in the, the 70s and 80s. And that's when people started trying to write across disciplinary boundaries. And they're trained as lawyers and know something about philosophy, or they're trained as philosophers and know something about law. And that's what got this started. David writes something about this in the paper, and I I think he attributes some of the energy and the discipline around that time to the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, and just a concern generally in the culture with values and ethics. Uh, This being something in the air that people were talking about and philosophers were writing about um, political and, and legal issues in a way that they might not have been prior to that. And it seemed to me there was a suggestion, at least, that the critical legal studies movement had an impact or was sort of developing in parallel to some of these new moves in legal ethics. Yeah, maybe. Uh, You know, two of the real giants in the field uh, have some crit connections, and that's Bill Simon and Bob Gordon. Um, you know, Bob wrote this great paper called Critical Legal Histories, and, and Bill's 1978 paper has some real crit inflections to it. I think that may have been going on. I think, you know, in critical legal studies, to some extent, is a 
continuation of American legal realism. And what those two movements have in common is that they take law not as uh, a kind of internally coherent discipline that has its own rationality and can be grasped purely from the internal point of view, but has to be thought about as instrumental to some social end. And, and you know, in that sense, realism and law and economics have a lot in common. And critical legal studies was kind of looking at law from the outside saying, what values does it serve? Are they, um, you know, is, is law just propping up the interests of the powerful? Is it a way of mystifying the, un, you know, unequal distributions of resources and power in society? And, you know, that's using the tools of some other discipline, whether it's critical theory or sociology or philosophy or something like that to critique law. Um, so I guess in that sense, the emerging legal ethics scholarship owes something to critical legal studies, but I think it's maybe just also an interdisciplinary ferment going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And do you think that there was a kind of normative commonality among the people who were sort of kind of constituted the main stem of the first wave of legal ethics scholarship? In other words, were they coming from the same place in terms of the values that they cared about? Or was there a kind of um, heterogeneity or disagreement about sort of what the goal of legal ethics would be? Well, this may be something that I've imposed on the field just to kind of have a foil for my own arguments. But it seems to me that the first wave by and large, was really, really concerned about legal injustice. And that's, of course, an important thing to be concerned about. But what they what, what they really saw as a problem for lawyers is complicity in injustice. And so the problems they set for themselves in legal ethics, and you really see this in Bill Simon's work. A lot of his examples involve lawyers who are assisting their clients in doing something that is lawful, um, but one's intuition is that it's kind of a crummy thing to do or it's unjust in some way. And I think Deborah Rohde, Bill, David, um, really were animated by the problem of complicity in injustice and maybe kind of unthinking complicity that lawyers just went along with doing what they took to be their job and never really thought very hard about the impact of what they did on, you know, third parties or, the distribution of resources in society or anything like that. They just figured that acting within that role and being a lawyer and doing their thing was a sufficient justification. And I think what what David and others have done, I mean, like the adversary system excuse is this classic paper that David has where he says, no, you got to cash out the justification. You can't just point to the role, whether it's being a lawyer or the adversary system or the legal system or whatever. You can't just look at that like it's self-justifying. You have to give me some reason to believe that following the requirements of that role is what is the right thing to do, all things considered. Yeah, and and, and I, I I can't help but wonder, like you 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 point to the fact that like professional responsibility and like the regulation of lawyers and legal ethics are two separate things, but it does seem like you know this was a period of time in which there was a lot of change in you know the regulation of lawyers as well. Did, was there a relationship between those two phenomena? And to what extent do you think this first wave had a effect on, like, for example, the revision of the rules of professional responsibility? <laughs> yeah, these these worlds can be different sometimes. Um, you know, certainly some people who are 
early and important legal ethics scholars, and I think of people like Deborah Rohde and Rick Abel, um, wrote really trenchant critiques of the rules of professional conduct. And, you know, Rick Abel is kind of famous for the thesis that this is just massively rent-seeking by the profession, that a lot of the rules of professional conduct, which ought to be about protecting clients or protecting third parties or, you know, safeguarding the interests of justice, are really just ways that lawyers can justify their professional monopoly and, and have something over on the accountants and the business people and competitors like that. Um, but I don't, I think the revisions to the rules. So the, the big change was in 1983 when the model rules were drafted. Well, they came in in 83, but they were being considered for four or five years by something called the Kutak commission. And that was lawyers and judges and a few academics. Jeff Hazard was the chief reporter to that, but they were thinking about law. I don't think they were thinking about the rules as instantiating important moral and political values, except indirectly. I mean, I think everybody who is part of this process believes that a well-regulated legal profession is important in a liberal democracy. But I don't think they were reading Bill Simon and David Lubon and Deborah Rohde and saying, you know, hang on, let's try to do a better job of aligning the requirements of the rules with the requirements of morality. I I just don't think the people who are involved in that process were thinking in those Mm. terms. Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess part of me can't help but wonder if some of those ideas weren't in the air though. I mean, cause I see things like the sort of watering down of the like uh duty of zealous representation or something like that. I mean, like, is, is it possible that there was some sort of like cross pollination there? Or do you think that they just really were not like um, communicating in substantive terms? Well, I think there may be some cross-pollination. So it's interesting that you mentioned the watering down of the duty of zealous advocacy. There was a competing document around the time of the Kutak Commission draft called something like the American Trial Lawyers Code of Conduct or something like that. And I think Monroe Friedman was involved in drafting that and arguing for it. And it took a much more uncompromising view of the lawyer's duties to the client. So it resisted what you're calling the watering down of the duty of zealous advocacy. So for example, where there might be permissions in the confidentiality rule, rule 1.6, which permit the lawyer to disclose confidential information to serve certain other values, to prevent bodily harm or prevent financial frauds or whatever. The trial lawyer's code of conduct, the Friedman version said, no, all the duties are owed to the client. And as for the protection of third parties, that's for the law and the operation of the legal system. And so if everyone just represents their client zealously, justice will come out as an output of this big machine, but lawyers shouldn't be aiming directly at it. And that was a big part of the 1983 model rules uh, drafting process was the consideration and rejection of that alternative. Yeah. So you point in your paper to some of these kind of counter voices to the main stem of the first wave of legal ethics scholarship, people like Friedman, people like Freed. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of where they were coming from and what you think they were reacting to in the scholarship of that period. So, so Freed, I don't know if he was reacting to anything. He's a, he's a philosopher, and I think he was just trying to give an account, and this is actually what I try to do in my own work, to give a philosophically mm. satisfying account of what lawyers take their duties to be. Um, so maybe he was just reacting to the critique. Maybe he was reading Wasserstrom and, and people like that and, and David and saying, you know, all these philosophers are, are dumping on lawyers, but there is something worthwhile in what lawyers do. What could that be? And so he started from an interesting foundation, this Aristotelian idea of friendship, 
taking up someone's interests as, as your own. And there's value in that. And Fried said, that's that's what lawyers do. They take up the interests of their client as their own. And, and um, we don't expect people necessarily to, uh, in a friendship relationship, to act with respect to one's friends, also impartially with concern for third parties and the interests of society. You're allowed to prioritize the interests of your family and your friends over others. That's what lawyers do for clients. Um, and that's the best way to understand the normative foundation of the lawyer's role. People had a field day mocking that. Um, Bill Simon famously said, yeah, but you're, you're missing something here, Charles. You're doing this for money. And when you prefer the interest of some other person for money, that's called prostitution, not friendship. Um, and so they all made fun of the analogy. But I've always thought there was something to the analogy. And I've kind of been a defender of Freed along the way. Um, but I think what he was reacting mm. to might have been the critiques by moral philosophers of lawyers. And every now and then you get somebody who is a philosopher and a lawyer um, who says, no, no, you're mischaracterizing what lawyers do or you're missing something important about the value that they provide. And, and this is what that is. And I think that's what Fried was trying to do in that paper. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there isn't something to that with respect to Friedman as well, because at least you know, I'm my in my limited understanding of a lot of that first wave scholarship. It does seem like there's a blurring of the distinction between civil and criminal representation, and that there might be legitimate reasons for thinking about them differently from an ethical standpoint. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I've been saying that for years, and that's something that drives me crazy. Uh, is when people write about the duties of lawyers and then they say, doesn't everyone deserve a vigorous defense? What if your liberties were threatened? Uh, you know, the, the champion of the friendless, blah, blah, blah. Look, I love Monroe Friedman and he's a, a wonderful scholar and, a, and a, you know, a fierce advocate, but he just could not let go of the paradigm of the criminal defense lawyer. And he's right about the criminal defense lawyer, but he's not right when it comes to civil litigation. And he's really not right when it comes, when it comes to um, counseling, transactional practice, compliance, and a lot of what m many lawyers do most of the time. So that, that criminal defense mm. paradigm, that overgeneralization from that paradigm has been a really big problem in legal ethics scholarship from the get-go. And I've been saying this constantly for years. And, and I think people are starting to, to get it now. And you're starting to see people say, okay, let's talk about lawyers in the advising context, or let's talk about civil litigators. But if you just kind of off the cuff say, what do you think about the duties of lawyers? They're going to People flip right into this paradigm of the criminal defense lawyer representing the, you know, the lonely individual facing the awesome power of the state and all that. And, you know, what is said in that domain is right, but it doesn't necessarily generalize. Yeah. So what about the introduction then or the kind of the move to the second wave that that you talk about? I mean, what was the second wave of legal ethics scholarship um, reacting to or questioning about the first wave? And how did it change the discussion around legal ethics scholarship? So I can't speak for everybody who gets lumped in together in the second wave, which includes Daniel Markovitz and Norman Spaulding and Alice Woolley and um, Kate Cruz to some extent, me, Tim. Um, I can't speak for everybody. My own motivation there really was primarily thinking that there was something missing in the description of the problem when people said something like the following. Um, you know, we all have duties as moral agents to be trustworthy and honest and not humiliate others and um, you know, all sorts of things that we would accept as part of the background moral duties that we all owe to each other. Um, how is it then 
that as a lawyer, you get to do all these nasty things. Well, you need some kind of justification. And what could that justification be? And then the threshold for the justification turned out to be really, really demanding. You had to show, and this is David's uh, four-step justification, you have to show that the institution is justified and the role is justified within it, and the action is justified within the role. And it turns out that it's really, really hard to carry this off. And I guess one of my insights was to think that the right framing is not a baseline of ordinary morality of people just interacting in daily life, but rather the baseline is political morality. How do we think about the duties that ought to fall upon social roles and actors who occupy them within a complicated institutional scheme that is aimed at doing certain things like safeguarding individual rights or settling social conflict or whatever. Um, so it's really starting from, you know, if you want to talk about philosophers, rather than talking about, you know, um, individuals and what they ought to do, like, you know, Kant and the murderer knocks on the door and do you lie to that person or not? Don't start with that. Start with Rawls. You know, start mm. with the, the the values that go into informing the basic structure of society and what a constitution in a just democratic society would look like. And then work down from that to the duties that have to fall upon people who occupy certain kinds of institutional roles and use that as the basis for building up legal ethics, not ordinary values like honesty or non-humiliation or dignity or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, that really gets at something that struck me reading your paper and, you know, in the beginnings of my reading of a lot of this scholarship is a part of me wonders whether the sort of first wave and second wave scholarship are are really asking or trying to answer the same questions. And I, and I wonder if, you know, if some of the first wave questions persist in a way that second wave scholarship maybe is set a, a different goal for itself. Well, I think I think yes, and you know David has bugged me about this for years. I mean, you know, he's um, very concerned about moral agency, and he's written some really great papers. There's a paper on the ethics of wrongful obedience, and um, what he worries about is you know the Eichmann problem. You know, you have a, a, a person who just defers their agency to a role, and they're acting in in Sartre and bad faith with respect to social roles, and they just think that. They go into work and punch the clock and and shuffle the files around and make sure the trains run on time and don't even ask the hard question about, wait, what are these trains carrying? You know, that's that's his concern. And he's right about that, you know, and and to talk about a social role that is more or less justified is all well and good. But you still have to ask the question, what is it like to be a person who occupies that role and may one occupy that role consistent with one's obligations? Um that are owed to others and, and um, go into being a, a reflective moral agent. So I think that's something that we in the second wave can't forget about. Now, there are different ways of taking that into account. Some people, I, one of them, uh, are kind of attracted to the idea of tragedy and, and dirty hands and the idea that there may be something that is justified on, you know, for various political reasons, but nevertheless involves one in, wrongdoing in a sense, um, that, that there's something kind of, not to be flippant about it, but something kind of icky about having done something. So I was just at a conference in, uh, at an international legal ethics conference in Australia, and I was on a panel with, uh, with Abby Smith, who's a wonderful 
lawyer and a feminist scholar. And she was talking about, she's a criminal defense lawyer, and she was talking about defending rape cases. And she said, you know, look, she gave a wonderful Monroe Friedman style justification of the necessity of a vigorous defense in those cases. But she said, you know, as a woman doing this and attacking the credibility of another woman, you know, how do I feel about it? Not always good some, sometimes, you know, sometimes it feels kind of, uh-huh. um, and I think there's something important in that feeling that, that needs to be hung on to. And that's the idea of dirty hands that you are justified in doing something, but you nevertheless, from the point of view of yourself as a moral agent, feel complicit in wrongdoing somehow, you still do it. Um, but you nevertheless acknowledge the cost that goes along with it. Yeah. I mean, you talked earlier about the sort of Kantian element of a lot of the first wave scholarship and a sort of Rawlsian shift in the second wave. And it really paralleled something that I was thinking about, or maybe paralleled something I was thinking about while reading the paper, that it does seem like the first wave perspective is like deeply saturated with a sort of deontological idea about, you know, the rightness and wrongness of actions. And that maybe that there's a certain infusion or move toward a more kind of consequentialist way of thinking about the ethical justification of lawyers' actions in the second wave. Is that, do you think that's a fair characterization? I would resist the ascription of consequentialism. I don't think I'm a consequentialist. And um, I think if you start with Rawls, for example, you know, Rawls is deeply influenced by Kant and, you know, thinks to some extent he's doing a kind of Kantian political theory and he's doing a political theory of rights. So he's doing a deontological political theory. Um, you know, Rawls famously said utilitarianism doesn't account for the distinctiveness of individual persons. And so he's quite concerned with rights. And but he's also concerned with the problem of pluralism, which I think is one of the big animating ideas of the second wave. And that is to say, we all think rights are important, but we disagree on what rights everyone ought to have and what the content of those rights should be and what happens when rights conflict and things like that. So it's well and good to say that this is an ethic of rights, but how do you deal with that in the context of a pluralistic society where people have different philosophical, religious, or other uh, grounds for believing that they have a right to do such and such. So the later Rawls, the the Rawls of political liberalism in 1993, was very concerned about that. And he said the basic structure of society ought to be sensitive to that. It ought to be based on reasons that everyone can endorse from within their own perspective, whatever that happens to be. Um, and, you know, he's not a consequentialist and, and nor am I. And, and so I don't think that the, the move from first to second wave or from kind of individual level to political is deontological to consequentialist. I think it's really more about how do you handle the problem of normative pluralism and empirical disagreement and uncertainty. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, maybe you could spend a minute talking about the sort of practical implications as well. I mean, I know you intentionally have, you know, distinguished between sort of the rules of professional responsibility and and legal ethics. Um, but, you know, to what extent going forward do you see a role for legal ethics to inform the way that we as lawyers think about professional responsibility? And in particular, like, to what extent do you think it's something to integrate into uh, a professional responsibility course? It's hard to integrate it, and I've tried. Um, it's it's tough because you have a, 
bunch of students who are kind of oriented toward toward learning law and law classes. And they're also petrified of the MPRE. And so they want to make sure they learn the rules and they're really oriented toward that. It's really hard. And I've tried to do this. It's hard to get them to say, okay, now we're going to read Deborah Rohde and Bill Simon. And they go, what? Is this on the MPRE? How do I deal with this? So it's tricky. But I do think as a scholar, yeah, I don't want to just write to the ivory tower. Um, I'd like to think that what I'm talking about matters for lawyers. And, you know, there it gets tricky. And I've tried to draw connections between what I think of the what I think are the duties of lawyers, how they are justified, and then how that might affect thinking about a particular concrete problem. So I'm I'm sort of inordinately fascinated by the problem of um, exploiting loopholes and you know lawyers manipulating and abusing the law in some way, and and how might we critique that from a normative perspective. Look, you know, something to say that, you know, you can get sanctioned for doing it or, you know, the deal will blow up or whatever. But what, what I want to know is, is it possible to say of that lawyer, they did wrong in virtue of the standards of conduct that ought to apply as a matter of reason, not as not as a matter of mm. professional conduct. Um, that's what I've tried to do. Some people find that plausible. Some people don't. It's probably the most controversial part of my work. Um, but that's something that I would I would like to see. You know, on the other side, we were talking about Friedman and the American Trial Lawyers Code of Conduct. And if you really believe in the hardcore standard conception, the idea of zealous advocacy being the most important thing, then you would vigorously resist exceptions to the duty of confidentiality. And, and you would be opposed mm. to the way the ABA has shot holes in Rule 1.6. So there are connections between the theoretical scholarship and the legal duties of lawyers and what they ought to be, but it, it's more indirect. Yeah. So you close the paper by talking about like a potential third wave of legal scholarship. Um, and you offer a few thoughts about what that might look like. And I was wondering if you could talk about those, but then in addition, I was wondering if you think that there might be a role for some sort of kind of, contemporary movements in legal thinking and in politics, things like, you know, feminism and me too, or critical race theory and, um, and black lives matter, or even something like kind of law and economics and kind of public choice thinking in terms of sort of additional ways of thinking about legal ethics going forward. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, feminism and critical race theory have always played a role in legal ethics. There have always been people, you know, Carrie Mankel Meadow, David Wilkins, people like that have always been writing from those perspectives and, and, and usefully so. There's always been a contribution from the religious lawyering movement um, and, and and a little bit of law and economics as well. Um, you know, that the, there are a lot of uh, law and economics scholars who have written a little bit about legal ethics and usually done a pretty good job. And but not really have stayed in the field. Um, so I think that's always been around. Um, I don't know what new movements there are in, in law, per se, as opposed to society. Um, you know, mm-hmm. maybe like the new private law movement, which is something I've just been dipping my toe into a little bit as a scholar, um, which I'm pretty interested in, may have something to say about legal ethics. Um, maybe not. I haven't really thought a lot about that yet, but I don't know. So you talk about the end of the paper that I just want to shout out Ellie Wald for pointing that out to me. I I was telling the story at a conference about how the story I told at the beginning where David said he didn't think there was anything more to say. And I said, but I'm sure there is. And 
and then I, I, I said, I don't think there's anything more to say. I think the second wave pretty much you know, said it all. And every, every wave goes, yeah, that's just exactly, that's what you would say in the second wave. So I thought, okay, fair point. Um, and so what would the third wave yeah. be? And, and, and David and I talked about behavioral legal ethics, which is interesting and, you know, fiduciary theory, but I don't know, you know, and maybe that's, maybe I'm just trapped in my own perspective and I can't see over the horizon and, and I don't know what's going to come next. Yeah. Okay. Well, Brad, in closing, one of the th- things I thought was really interesting about this paper in particular is the way that you collaborated with David Lubin. So I was wondering if you could talk about the collaboration and how you structured writing the paper um, in relation to sort of your own respective positions within the field. Yeah, it was really fun. And the, it came about because we had both submitted basically the same proposal to the journal for this um, symposium issue. And the, the journal editors put us together and we said, yeah, let's try to write it together. Um, he and I, you know, we see each other at conferences all the time and we're often the, you know, sort of punch and Judy show of, you know, of this. But um, so we we started out with not really any concrete plan for how we would do it. We kind of ended up writing each other's section to begin with. So I took a crack at writing what I thought were the commitments of the first wave. And he wrote what he took to be the commitments of the second wave. And then we kind of revised them. And we both revised over each other's sections enough that, you know, there are places in there where it's clearly his voice or places where it's clearly my voice, but it really is our paper. We didn't just divide it up into chunks and and write them and then fuse them together. We really kind of wrote over each other a lot to the point that it really is kind of our paper. And, you know, he's one of the things that's just wonderful about working with David is he is so fair minded. Um, you know, he's a first wave guy. He's going to defend that position, but he sees a lot of good things in the second wave. And he's written some papers that I think actually kind of go pretty far toward where I'm at. Um, and so he's extremely fair and I try to be fair to his position. And I think that made it possible to work together and write something that really was a joint product and not just a couple of disjointed things that got stuck together. Awesome. Well, Brad, thanks so much for talking to me today. Um, I really enjoyed your paper. I've loved talking to you about it and I'm really looking forward to engaging with legal ethics scholarship as a new person in the field. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, and we hope you stay in the field. It's a lot of fun. We're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. The way we've been treated is really obscene. Could end up by getting us tossed in the jug We all got the gate for no reason or rhyme You'd think we'd committed some horrible crime Our minds may be dirty, but our hands are clean We're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean We're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean Our job was to see that the White House stayed green might have had laws like bending the laws, but God only knows it was for a good cause. There's no power shortage where we were concerned, and what little profit resulted we earned. For lovelier fellows you never have seen than Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. 
Mayor Haldeman, Mayor Lichtman, Mitchell, and Dean. Our past has been fat, but the future looks lean. With backs to the wall, we're taking the fall. But damn it, we only robbed Peter Paypal. Just when we were getting to be well-to-do, the Watergate turned into our Waterloo. And now everybody is out to demean for Haldeman, Mayor Lichtman, Mitchell, and Dean. Yes, we're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. We're perfectly willing to spill every bean. We'd nothing to hide with God on our side. He knows we were only along for the ride. But so it won't come as a terrible blow. There's one little thing that we think you should know. Whatever we say isn't quite what we mean. We're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. Oh yes, we're Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, and Dean. Things won't be the same when we're gone from the scene. But people will still recall with a thrill our sellout performance on Capitol Hill. It just isn't fair to take all of the blame when all we were doing was playing the game. Now all of Washington's caught in between. Hold